0: listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. We um, sat around a campfire with some of my lifelong childhood friends. It was uh, my bachelor party. Never much of a party animal uh, to begin with, so I knew I didn't want to do anything crazy. I was uh, training for ministry at Bible college. I just wanted a simple uh, time of of just relaxing with my friends, and so that would be my bachelor party. Weirdly enough, uh, the focus wasn't on me that weekend. Uh, It was on my best friend who was also engaged uh, to be married. Truth be told, none of us cared too much for his bride to be, and she, she might have been a great person. We just, we just knew that like, they were not a good fit, and, and if I can give any relationship advice that has nothing to do with this message, if all of your Christian friends don't like the person you're dating, you, you probably shouldn't be dating that person. And so regardless, that was our mission that night, convince my friend to call off the wedding. Um, And guess what? It worked. Uh, That weekend, he officially called off the wedding, and the relationship ended, and I remember walking into Best Buy with him so he could buy a PlayStation with the money from the engagement ring that she returned to him. So good things come to those that listen to Wise Advice, and to be fair, it did work out in the end for him. He's Now happily married uh, for many years they have three kids and and two foster children and let's be honest with each other marriage is an incredibly serious thing regardless of what our culture is is trying to sell us right now the marriage between one man and one woman um, is not just some romantic fling it's a it's a covenant relationship before the Lord and I know in this room, and even those that are listening, we have a lot of stories of messy covenant marriages, and even uh, broken covenant marriages. And so it makes sense that the God of the Bible would speak into these realities through narrative where we will read this morning of a marriage birthed out of deception and manipulation and at times, I'd say even love. A marriage started with brokenness and death. And, and I mean, like, when I, when I think about all this and I look at the scriptures and I, I, I look at our own lives, like, how, how could this covenant of marriage be a good thing at all? How could this covenant of marriage be worth it if it is going to be filled with so much heartache at times? And the answer is always found in Christ, because Christ will show us what real covenant marriage is and why it's eternally worth it. So let me show you from the Word. We'll be in 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 17 today, if you have a digital Bible. Again, I'll read out of the ESV. If you have a bulletin, it's all there in uh, your bulletin. But before we study the word together, let's pray together. Father, we come before you in um, just weekly confession, knowing that relationships are, are more times than not incredibly difficult, and we look at the reality of marriage and um, the seriousness of it. And still realize it's incredibly messy. Knowing that even in our own church, there are godly, faithful marriages. And even in our own church, there are are people that have been brought to their knees in broken marriages. So God, as we study the Word this morning... um, I I pray that this is not just some uh, marriage pep talk. God, that we would see the beautiful reality of Christ and his church. God, show us um, from 1 Samuel 18. God, give us grace as we study this passage together. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This is the story of Saul, Saul's daughters, David in the Philistines, a story of revenge, deceit, love, story of a royal marriage. And fair warning, it's a strange story. So verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merim. I'll give her to you for a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? Who am I? And who, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, Let me me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem too too little a thing to become the king's son-in-law? I mean, I'm a poor man and have no reputation. The servants of Saul said to him, thus and so did David speak. And Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that they may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men, and he killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, and so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The question that we will answer uh, in our notes and from this story is, who is our bridegroom? Who's our bridegroom? I mean, we can clearly see what's taking place here in the text. We can clearly see that David is being chosen as the bridegroom for one of Saul's daughters, which we'll look at. But what about us? I mean, this is, I mean, fair warning, it's a strange story. This is not... This is not the kind of story I read to my kids when I put them to bed at night. Um, what could 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 30, have to do with us in 2023? And, and if we're struggling to see the application in the Bible, the answer is usually found in the reality that we're not looking at God enough. The reason why you and I struggle to read the Old Testament is often rooted in the truth that we fail to see the redemption of Christ in the Old Testament. That all of the mess, all of the brokenness of the Bible is clawing its way to the cross of Christ. That while David is the bridegroom, Christ Jesus from the royal line of David becomes our bridegroom. And if you're thinking, well, that's weird, why would we come to that conclusion? Because that's how Jesus identifies himself. This is Mark 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So we begin to see this beautiful imagery in the New Testament of Christ becoming the bridegroom to his bride, the church. So let me show you what that means and who he is through the narrative of 1 Samuel 18, 17 through 30. Who is our bridegroom? If you're a note taker, here's point one. He's the bridegroom that chose us. That chose us. So here's what we know so far in the narrative. We know that David is the anointed as king over Israel by Samuel. We know that David has killed the giant from Gath. We know that David has been brought into the home of Saul and Jonathan. We know that David has a covenant friendship with Jonathan. We know that Saul is out to kill David because of his jealousy and his rage. And so as we enter verse 17, we see Saul's reward to David for killing the giant. It's a reward that would like permanently bring him into the royal family. Verse 17, here's my oldest daughter, Mira, and I'll give her to you for a wife. You just keep fighting the Lord's battles. All right. Well, that seems like a very kind gesture. That is until we read the thought of Saul, where he says, let not my hand be against him, but the hand of the Philistines be against him. Meaning Saul was just using this potential marriage to, set, to, like, to get David killed, as we'll see. But David, he, he, as we see in the text, he's just too humble for all that. I mean, who am I that you would choose me? Who am I that you would choose me to be a son-in-law to the king? David doesn't even feel worthy to be chosen, so the oldest daughter was married off to a different man, but there's another daughter in verse 20, a kind of relationship that was built on love, at the very least uh, a surface-level kind of love. For Saul's youngest daughter, Michal, loved David. So Saul hears of that, and he's, he's just pumped. The first attempt to trap David, backfired, but now his youngest daughter is in love with the man that he wants dead. It's a perfect plan. But he he does need to walk carefully this time. So again, Saul chooses David to marry his daughter. This time Saul sends his servants as persuasive messengers in verse 22 of our text. It says, the king has delight in you, David. All the servants love you. Please become the king's son-in-law. And honestly, I can only imagine what's swirling in David's head as he hears these words again. Like, maybe this is how I become king. Maybe, maybe this is how Samuel's words are fulfilled. But the words that spill out for David are like, don't, don't you realize what you're saying to me? I'm a, I'm a poor man. I have no I have no reputation for something like this. I mean is it a little thing that I'm being chosen to be the king's son-in-law? Here's our first connecting point. David the bridegroom is chosen. Jesus the bridegroom chooses. David was chosen to become the bridegroom for Saul's daughter, but Jesus, the bridegroom, chooses the church to be his bride. It's literally a picture that we begin to see in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. We are a chosen people. And if you're thinking like, man, I don't really like the way you're saying that, Jason. All right. Uh, well, then let me read what the Bible says. John fifteen, sixteen. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Matthew 22, 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Here is what we can at least agree on biblically. If you have believed, repented, and have been baptized into Christ, you were a part of a chosen people. That should not scare or divide us as a church. That should fill us with encouragement. Israel, a chosen nation, the church, a chosen people. We are chosen. The amount of disunity and this disagreement I've heard my entire life over that is just nonsense. I think of the attitude of David in all of this. Who am I? Who am I that you would call me into that kind of group? I mean, to become not just a son-in-law, but a son or daughter of the king. Who am I? Because if I was the bridegroom, I wouldn't choose someone like me. I mean, I'm poor, of no reputation. And yet God chose you. Beautiful mystery of the gospel. He's the bridegroom that has chosen us, his church, his bride. So don't ever feel like no one wants you. The God of the universe wants you. Let me show you what he did to get you. Who is our bridegroom? Here's point two. He's the bridegroom that purchased us at great price. So here's where the the narrative does get a little awkward. Saul is fully aware that David is broke. David's daddy doesn't have a stockpile full of cash back in Bethlehem. David is poor, which is why Saul sends his servants in verse 25 to say the king desires no bride price. All right, that can also be known as a, a bridal payment or a dowry. Basically, the bridegroom would make a deal with the bride's family to transfer in, her into his family. That could mean money, uh, that could mean livestock, that could mean land, neither of which David has much to share. So in every other situation in ancient Near Eastern culture, David, at this point, he's just not fit to get married. At at least not able to provide for this new royal bride. So now we hear Saul's wicked plan that he has been plotting all along. He's trying to trap David in an impossible bride price, verse 25. I don't desire a bride price for, for me, Cal. I, I just need you to bring back 100 foreskins from the Philistines so that I might be avenged from my enemies. All right. Um, pretty, pretty painful request in more ways than one. And Saul wants David to not kill one giant. Saul wants David to kill 100 Philistines a trap that might send David to his death, but as we can see, he does take him up on that offer. He arose in verse 27 of our passage. He took his men. He killed not 100 Philistines. He killed 200 Philistines. And then he brought back proof of that victory. Here's the second connecting point. David, the bridegroom, almost paid for his life to marry the daughter of Saul. And Jesus, the bridegroom, actually did pay with his life for his bride. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." knowing that we were once dead in our sin. We were once futile in our ways. We were once sentenced to the wrath of God. We were once destined not to an eternal marriage, but an eternal death. And yet Christ paid the bride price for his church. The great bride price for the church was the death of Christ Jesus. It was the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, yeah, our bridegroom purchased us at the greatest price. I don't know about your house, but at our house, um, it can be messy sometimes. Could be an understatement. And some drawers and closets are, are neatly organized and put away. And some drawers and closets are just kind of like a dumping ground for all the things you don't know what to do with and you're just too lazy to get rid of. So there's been more times than once we've been trying to clean up around the house and then you find uh, in one of those closets like it's some buried treasure, just something you lost. And then more times than once we've said these words out loud, I forgot I bought that. Friends, that's, that's just not how the bridegroom of Christ works. You were not saved and then forgotten. You were not purchased and put away to be lost. Spurgeon, he put it best like this. He said, Christian, you may fear, you may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made or the only saint he ever loved. Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. We were purchased at great price for our bridegroom bought us with his own blood For we're loved and chosen and purchased. Who's our bridegroom? Let me give you point three. He's the bridegroom that brings us into the royal family. So the the plan backfired. Saul is, is waiting for the news that David was dead. And yet he returns with double victory. I mean, how could it be? How is this possible? Well, verse 28 shows us. Saul is reminded again that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, really did love him. So he's terrified. Saul's terrified with his new son-in-law. Saul was David's enemy continually. And I think, man, wow, that's a... That's a terrible family to marry into, right? Your father-in-law wants you dead. You wouldn't marry your now sister-in-law. You just killed 200 Philistines to marry the last daughter left in the family. The next family gathering could be a little weird, especially if Saul starts throwing those spears again. And I think, like, what what a chaotic nightmare of a family for David. I'm not saying this because I'm being recorded, um, but I married into a great family. I really have. Um, But maybe you haven't. Maybe the in-laws and other family members have been quite a train wreck at times. And I, I do, I counsel people all the time that have chaotic families that they've married into, and from Every contextual clue, David did just that. Here's the third and last connecting point. David the bridegroom married into a chaotic royal mess. Jesus the bridegroom brings us into an eternal royal family. 1 Peter 2. Verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are in Christ, that is the kind of family that you're married into, a son or daughter to the king, that we are part of of the family and a heavenly monarch. This This beautiful promised reality of Christ as the bridegroom. He's not inviting you into a future mess. He's not inviting you into eternal drama. We've got enough family drama as it is. No, the covenant marriage of Christ and the church is that Christ carries us into this royal family. As more of Ephesians 5 says, Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ the bridegroom brings us into the royal family. April 28th. Um, 2018. I officiated a wedding at the Prairie Street Brew House in Rockford, Illinois. A pretty high-profile wedding with two wedding planners on site with both with walkie-talkies trying to make sure that we don't ruin this day. And um, so to say I was nervous would be an understatement and to be honest I, I, I really I do not remember a lot about the ceremony. I just know that nothing bad happened, so that was a good thing. But what I do remember, what I will never forget is that wedding reception. So I've officiated uh, plenty of weddings over the years, but this reception checked all the boxes. And so once everyone was at their table, we sat at our table, it was two of the best bottles of wine a basket full of fresh bread and butter. Two of the best meats for the main course. You didn't have to choose at this wedding. They just served you roasted pork and filet mignon. And we ate and laughed and told stories until our bellies and hearts were full. And I'm not much of the dancing type. I think you could guess that. But others began to dance and sing all of the popular wedding songs and As the night went on, they opened up another room on the next level. The room was full of pastries and cake and and fresh coffee. And I could only imagine how much this night cost. It must have been a small fortune to feed all of us. But wow, it just felt worth it in the moment. It was a wedding feast to remember. how much more, how much more of a wedding feast will we enjoy with Christ? And I think of after all these years, and after all the suffering and after all the chaos of this life, and after all the doubt and the drama and the worry and the busted up relationships and the poverty and the war and the disappointment and the tears and the sickness and in death, and after it all, when the church is presented as the spotless bride, the wedding feast will commence. Revelation 19, verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So I'll be simple, that's your summary point. Blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. God, we're uh, thankful for the truth of your word and seeing the reality of a, a distorted and a messy beginning of a marriage and a broken family. But God, that would remind us of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That would remind us how much that you love us. To remind us what great price that you paid for us. To remind us of what kind of family we get to belong to. And so I'm thankful for the truth of your word. God, let us be encouraged um, in what we have heard and studied this morning. We pray these things in your son's name, amen.